Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, and with Teos off in Renton at the Wizards of the Coast retreat, I am here with our very special guest, Ben Byrne. Hey, Ben, how are you? I am really good, Sean. It's great, it's great to be here. Thank you for asking me onto this prestigious number two podcast in all the realms. Number two. Of course, number one being the show that you host. Uh, so could you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, what you do in the gaming industry? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Ben. Uh, I am the media content manager at Ghostfire Gaming. Um, so predominantly at the moment is uh, the Eldritch Lawcast, which I co-host uh, with your very prestigious self, Dale Kingsmill uh, and James Hake. Um, uh, I also make YouTube videos and I kind of, I, I like to think of myself as a game designer in training because I, I, I like to sink my teeth into a lot of game design kind of things and then make videos about the the stuff that I've gotten to make. So um, I sort of started as a pro GM for a few years and then started writing my own adventures to the, for, for that. And then from there, kind of uh, transitioned into Ghostfire. Um, so that's how I've managed to find my way, a path into the industry. Well, one of the joys of my work day is getting a chance to talk with you about game design, because we've been doing more and more of that as, you know, as we've worked together. And so I wanted to have mm. you on to talk about really anything you want to talk about. And so <laughs> our main topic today is going to be not a look at a particular role-playing game as we've been doing but to talk about genre and theme in games and mm. what that means for the types of games that we play mm. but before sure. we get before we get to that let's roll through the rest of the show first we are going to go to our listener corner to talk to some of the folks who have been following us and the first person is james 101 via our discord and this is what James has to say. The first question I have with all these playtest things coming out, be it Black Flag or 1D&D, how are we supposed to playtest these things? I have two games running, but I can't just start changing rules and subclasses willy-nilly, can I? And that is a great mm. question, which I am going to toss over to Ben, who had a better answer than I did. <laughs> Yeah, this is a really fantastic question because I wondered the same thing. As these playtests start coming out, you want to be involved. Um, and so it feels like you kind of need to interrupt whatever game it is that you're playing to, to pull them in. Um, I've been kind of pulling a few parts into my 5e game from the 1D&D playtest packets. Uh, specifically, I really liked what they did with exhaustion, which I believe is you take like a negative one for each level of exhaustion that you have up to 10 on all your D20 rolls, I believe. And I think it also affects your spell save DC as well. And I liked that because what I've found in practice is that uh, when players got like one or even two levels of exhaustion previously with 5e, they just disengaged from the game. It was like, oh, I've got exhaustion. Um, I've got disadvantage, even though I've got a plus seven on this roll, somebody else do it. Whereas if it's just a negative one or negative two, they still feel confident to be able to, to overcome that roll. Um, I haven't provided playtest feedback on that to Wizards formally, because again, this is still in a 5e context. So I don't know if my feedback is necessarily what they're looking for. Um, but if you, if you can kind of, uh, uh, you know, stop your game and play an all one D&D game, um, then do so. If you can't and you just want to import a couple of things, then do so. And you can give feedback uh, on that. Um, because remember that, that they're not expecting everybody 
to provide feedback on everything. You know, you can't possibly, especially because they're drip feeding it out so much. Um, we haven't had a Druid until the most recent, was it the most recent was the Druid? Mm -hmm. uh, Playtest packet. And so you couldn't have, you might not have had a full party because initially you only had the experts and then you we, they added the cleric and whatnot. So um, playtest what you can, but don't feel pressure to, to use all of it even, you know, just use what you can, what seems cool in your game. And then if you want to dive in with a full one shot, run a one shot. So I think what you said there, Ben, was spot on. And since we're not testing a new game because 1D&D is cleaving very closely to 5E, we don't mm. need to test it from the ground up. So I think pulling pieces out and just inserting them into your regular 5E game is a good enough sort of play test to get an idea for the 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 most two most important things which are is anything truly broken and how do the players like the changes i think that's really what they're looking for is yeah. it playable and if you can do those things yeah. by just pulling pieces of spells or pieces of subclasses or whatever into your game then i think that's that's good enough yeah, there, there's an academically interesting question, which is like, how do the new classes stack against the old if you've got them in the same party? I don't know if that's useful playtest feedback for them, but I find that interesting. Yeah, yeah, and maybe that's something they will ask going forward. We we don't know mm. what their real plan is, so I think they're making some of this up as they go along, which is perfect, <laughs> perfectly, perfectly reasonable because a lot of us make up things as we go along. Such as podcasts. That is true. <laughs> All right. So James had a second question, which is, now that a lot of companies are putting things into the creative commons, like Forge of Foes that Teos, Mike Shea, and Scott Gray just finished, what's to stop mm. Wizards of the Coast from taking some of the best stuff out there and putting it into 1D&D? And the answer is nothing. If you publish under the creative commons and there's no way to keep it out then they could but they really could do that in a lot of things a, a lot of the things that are up on uh D, &D beyond or not D, &D beyond mm. uh dm's guild mm. uh are sort of under that same well, both, thing. i think yeah yeah exactly so uh nothing stopping them except bad publicity and with a company like wizards and hasbro Bad publicity can really hurt them. Mm. So I mean, we've seen that already. So if they want to make bank off the D&D movie and off TV shows and off merchandising, they really don't want any bad press. They don't want any ill will toward them. And doing something mm. like that would be if they just lifted it wholesale. So they're in a position there where I think if they did want to use something, they would just go to the creator and say, we like that. Can we use it? Now, with Black Flag, if it's done under a license, they could totally do that because they could just use that license. Uh, so, right, it's it's all one big sort of legal amalgam of weirdness. But in the long run... Right, You could boycott Amazon and it wouldn't even be a blip on their radar. You could boycott yeah. these other huge companies and it doesn't affect them at all. We've already seen that Wizards of the Coast getting a boycott uh, 
moves the needle at least a little bit in terms of their awareness. Mm. So any thoughts on that? Mm. No, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if they do kind of take, you know, uh, for example, if they decide species isn't where it's at in terms of uh, uh, solving how to appropriately refer to racial differences in D&D or species differences, I could see them kind of dipping into heritage and lineage, which is what um, uh, Black Flag are doing, but uh, which would be interesting to see if that kind of went back the other way, especially because D&D has a habit of, popularizing something beyond the scope of what black flag could do so people might associate it with D, even though it was originated in black flag whatever the the rule would be so i'd be fascinated to see if it would happen but um yeah i think you hit the nail on the head yeah and one thing to always be aware of is good game design sort of shows itself as not necessarily obvious but without much thinking you can see what's good and what's not and so you are going to get parallel design that looks very similar. Mm. Back in the days of Dragon and Dungeon Magazine, where you had to mail in with postage your submissions, I would send something into one of those two magazines and I would get the letter back saying, well, this is very nice, but we can't use it. Thank you. Please submit again. And then a month or two later, something exactly like what I wrote would be in the magazine. And I would yeah. rage. I would get so upset. Oh, they're stealing at people's ideas. Uh, no, they're not. It's just, you know, it's obvious. Certain subclasses are obvious. Certain rules are obvious. We want to tweak this to make it easier to understand or just slightly more complicated. Well, there's generally like two or three ways to do that. Mm. And it's it's obvious. So, no, Wizards of the Coast does not want to steal your your ideas because they have many smart people there who have the same ideas that we do. And mm. they're just able to put it together, put art on it, and market it better than anyone else can in the industry at this point. Mm. So that's, mm. that, that's basically it. Uh, we have another message from the Welsh DM via Twitter. What are your thoughts... <laughs> On one D&D, making all casters behave the same way, such as spell slots equaling spells prepared and generic, uh, shared generic spell lists, etc. I think it's leading to each class feeling the same and creating a lack of variety in the game and in the party. Uh, I'll, I'll take this first, Ben, and then you step in. So, great question, Welsh DM. Here's my answer. What are your design goals? If your design goals are to have the biggest variety of caster types that you want then what one D is doing isn't the greatest thing however mm. if you want it to be easier to play if i'm a dm and i'm sitting down to teach new players and amy wants to play a wizard and bob wants to play a warlock and sue wants to play a cleric and i have to describe three different ways that spell casting works to each of those players that's a huge hassle and I would want, then, a system of spellcasting that is the same for all three. So is it leading to more of the same feeling? For you, probably. For other people, probably not. You know, for new players, they, they want a system that they understand. So the, the, the short answer is, like most answers in game design with complex games, what do you want? And what yeah. you want is what you should design toward. 
Yeah, I, I agree largely. It's kind of the 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 answer to most GMing questions are talk to your players. Uh, what what are your goals and talk to your players? Um, but for my part, I I sort of agree. Um, the thing that I noticed through Five E, uh, particularly through Xanathar's and Tasha's kind of expansions on the base rules and expansions of the base classes, is it seemed to be introducing a lot of ways to play other classes as one class if that makes any sense whatsoever what i mean is that like i think the radiant soul sorcerer i think it is that's in xanathar's is a really cool idea uh, and i think they did a, a a sort of celestial themed warlock as well in that book but it also felt like a way to play a cleric as a sorcerer or play a cleric as a warlock and i i think we we saw that again a little bit with tasha's it just felt like there was a lot of ways where they were trying to or seemed like they were trying to um kind of make make any build possible in any class Mm. and for me personally if i was designing a system my design goals definitely would be to make the classes feel unique and feel like there's a different tool for different jobs so Mm. to speak if you need healing or you need uh, divine magic you need a cleric because only clerics get divine magic but if you need arcane magic you need a wizard i like that feeling personally Mm. um so if it if it continues to get more free form um I don't know, maybe I'll play a different game, but I appreciate how streamlining it all across does make it a lot easier for new players who anytime I have uh, for one player in my group in particular, she never prepares spells. We just ignore the preparing spells. We just choose a spell list as if she knows those spells like a sorcerer, but if she's ever playing a wizard or a cleric, it's just, no, these are your spells because there's no way she's wrapping her head around preparing new spells at the end of each day and, and all that sort of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. I can't answer any better than that. And finally, to someone who both you and I know, Ben, Greg Marks via Twitter. Greg says, I was listening to Mastering Dungeons. Well, thank you, Greg. And heard the comment about taking away off-turn sneak attacks, speeding up a game. In light of making monsters tougher and how everyone takes every action they can, won't lowering the rogue's DPS, right, damage per round, actually slow the game, assuming they still get opportunity attacks or granted attacks? So... To be clear, Greg, we at Mastering Dungeons weren't saying that it would make the game faster. Jeremy Crawford gave that reason for why they had moved in that direction for this particular playtest, to see if it might make the game faster. So I don't agree or disagree with that sentiment either way. Uh, I would want to see playtest results before I decided if taking away the once-per-turn sneak attack did make the game faster but i think we can agree that monsters needed to be made harder because people were doing more damage than the game thought they would and they were doing more damage than the game thought they would for a variety of reasons one of which one of which was if you give players the chance to do their big things they are going to do their big things as many times as you allow them so it's a chicken and the egg problem. If we uh, we didn't wouldn't have to up the monsters if the rogue didn't sneak attack so often. <laughs> so you can't use that as the reason why you know we need to keep it in the game. I guess if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I think there's also like 
Uh, that, that's what they talk about with balance in D&D, right? Is It's not a matter of making every encounter balanced for the party so that there's always a fair fight for the party or the monsters either way, but just having a balance so the GM knows what to expect from the party and so they can decide whether they want this encounter to be really dangerous or, or not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, I think I saw this tweet, and the other thing that it made me think was what do they mean specifically by speeding up the game? Because I get what uh, Greg is saying in terms of if the monster takes longer to kill, doesn't the combat go for longer? Are they talking about time of combat or are they talking about pace of combat? Because mm-hmm. I would be much more satisfied sitting in a combat that went for an hour and a half, but I'm taking a turn every, you know, five to 10 minutes, as opposed to a combat that only goes for 45 minutes to an hour, but I'm only taking a turn every 15 minutes. You know what I mean? Um, I think what's personally, what I think would be a better design goal is to try to speed up the pace rather than necessarily the time of combat. And then the GM can figure out how long they want the combat to go by how many monsters and how much HP they're kind of pumping Mm -hmm. into the encounter. Um, So, yeah, I thought it was more about pace than necessarily like length of, of combat time. Yeah. I I think you're right there as well, based on the, the video that Jeremy did, which was great Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's great that they were doing these videos and being more explicit in their goals to at least give us a, 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 a bellwether of, of how it was going and what those choices they were making actually were for and did they accomplish yeah. those things. So yeah, you know, kudos to, to them. And thank you, Greg, for the question. That's our listener corner. Now let's get into the news and boy, is there news. Woo. Woo. The big news of course was D and D direct, which happened on March 28th. I did not see it live. I was teaching my class, but when I got home, I turned it on to find out that it was already over. Mm. However, I had lots of people telling me what was happening and videos and all sorts of things. So we can now report with 99, 99% assurity of what was covered there. And we'll, we'll go right in order of what they talked about. Uh, first, they talked about the Minecraft D&D partnership. Mm. Uh, any thoughts on that, Ben? Yeah, it looked cool. Uh, when I, It was one of like the big things, because I also missed the, the direct live because I was asleep, because uh, mm. it was at 3am Australia time. Yeah. Um, and Minecraft D&D was like one of the big headlines, I suppose, that I saw coming out of that thing when I woke yeah. up. I actually didn't watch the direct until like half a week later um, when I got around to it. But the D&D Minecraft thing actually legitimately seemed cool to me mm-hmm. because Minecraft's uh, uh, digital Legos, right? Ostensibly. I don't play a lot of Minecraft, so I don't know a hell of a lot about it. Um, but, you know, it, it seems like it would be super fun to use Minecraft as your virtual tabletop, mm-hmm. as the DM, and just have the DM as a little character in there with everybody else's characters just running around, like describing the rooms and then just drop, instead of running like 5e combat, just drop monsters in the game into the room. Players fight the monsters. Okay, great. Now, now let's see what you find in here. And the DM just basically makes a real dungeon for the players to to run through. That seems like a cool idea to me. Yeah, I've, I've played Minecraft probably a total of three minutes. Uh, and... <laughs> But I, I mean, I know young people that play it. I know older people that play it. You know, I know lots and lots across a diverse uh, range of people. So I was excited for it just for that reason, because I, you know, I know of parents that play Minecraft with their kids, 
Now they can play mm. Minecraft D&D with their kids, which may then lead mm. into, hey, would you like to try the actual D&D game? Uh, mm. Because it sounds like this is downloadable content for Minecraft called Monstrous Compendium. That's the, the D&D thing. You can choose a class. You can fight monsters. You even roll D20s uh, in this, apparently. So it's, you know, it's that first step of getting Minecraft players into the D&D player category, and I'm all for that. I just think Minecraft players will be confused by all the other dice because they're not square. Yeah. Minecraft people think only in squares. They'll be that, like, what is this weird shape? Ooh, that, that, is, that is strange. Maybe they'll have a six-sided, 20-sider. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, they also announced the Golden Archive figures, which are the Xanathar, an Owlbear, and a Displacer Beast. Mm. Uh, the latter two presenting themselves highly in the D&D movie. Uh, the Owlbear is eight and a half inches tall by seven and a half inches wide. So these are not small minis. These are figures. Uh, you big collector? Uh, yeah, but but of smaller miniatures. I saw a picture of the Xanathar and I was like, that's a nice beholder mini. And then I realized that, yeah, it's probably actually quite big. That being said, that's a nice beholder mini. So <laughs> it's definitely something I, I find it. Because I spent so much money on like uh, um, like wargaming and D and D miniatures, I find it hard to justify the cost of buying those like larger toys. But uh, if if I see one, if they do come to Australia and sell through uh, some local retailer, I think I'd be tempted to pick up the Xanathars. And speaking of non mini minis, we have the twenty inch mimic from WizKids for three hundred and seventy five dollars. <laughs> uh, we we sort do. Yeah, we sort of knew that from before. Uh, that had been mentioned, but it was highlighted in D&D Direct. So Teos, I know, was very upset that it wasn't a regular treasure chest that turned into a mimic. It was full think, mimic right from the start. I think Dale said the same thing when we yeah. talked about it. She was like, can I put anything in it? I was like, no. She was like, I don't want it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But if you need to get your mimic on and it needs to be 20 inches tall... You know where to go. Uh, they also announced another secret layer drop for Magic. Six Magic the Gathering cards from the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. I, again, don't play Magic, so I was excited for Magic D&D crossover folks, but uh, didn't didn't do much for me. Yeah, no, I'm not a Magic the Gathering fan. I'd like to be, but I'd like to be a fan of everything. I say that all the time. Right. It's All we need is about another million dollars and another <laughs> life to live, and then we can do yeah. all of these cool things. Uh, but if you are a Neverwinter MMO player, you got some news. Menzo Baranzan will be the 25th, 25th expansion for the Neverwinter MMO. And it was partly written by R.A. Salvatore. Mm. So I believe that was the case. Uh, so, you know, if you're if you're a Neverwinter MMO player, this is the first time we're seeing Menzo Baranzan, as far as I can tell, in sort of video game form. A very famous drow under Dark City. Right. 
this is one of those deep dives again where because i'm not deep in the forgotten law uh, forgotten realms law um i'm like okay that sounds important the way you're saying it sounds very important but i have no idea where that is so that's interesting that that's a uh, an area of the forgotten realms i haven't necessarily seen a lot of my importance scale is can i spell it without looking it up <laughs> and menzo baranzan i can spell without looking up uh, okay. So so that's how important it is on the Sean Merwin can spell it scale. <laughs> Aarakocra and Grackle Stew are also also there. On there? Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. That's fair. But yeah, I mean it it looks like I've played the MMO for a few hours. I haven't touched it in the last probably five years. But uh it's it's great that it's keeping going like it is. Mm. It's, we get news from Joe Manganiello's 50th anniversary anniversary documentary on D&D. Um, he was there talking about, you know, putting it together and what was going to be in it. What are your, this, uh, yeah. this seemed really funny to me because it introduced him. He was like, hi, I'm Joe Manganiello. I'm here talking about the 50th D&D movie back where my love of D&D started uh, with Dragonlance. And I tried to convince a whole bunch of TV executives to make it Dragonlance TV show. Anyway, that didn't work out. Here's a document. I was like, why did he mention that? Was he trying to like sneak it in there to, to try gauge fan reaction to that thing specifically? Yeah. I mean, Joe, I think Joe has had his, you know, his Dragonlance sword and spear out just fighting, <laughs> fighting for all he's worth trying to get this made. And it's it's fallen through repeatedly but i i would love to see it but yeah 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 me too i'm just imagining some wizards executive on the phone with him though like oh i had a call with joe manganella did he mention dragonlance he did mention dragonlance every time several times once per sentence dragonlance yeah. came out <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly but yeah i'm looking forward to the the documentary even though if you are a even a semi casual fan of D&D, you know, you probably know a bit about the history. And so I'm wondering if this is going to be sort of the pie in the sky, how great is D&D, or if it gets into some of the weeds of, you know, some of the controversial aspects of it. Uh, it'll be interesting to see the tact that the documentary takes. There are some really good documentaries on the history of D&D. I assume they're good, to, to be fair. I haven't necessarily gone and fact-checked every one of them. But there's some some seemingly great ones on YouTube. I wish I could remember the channels off the top of my head. I can't, unfortunately. Um, there is, is it Slaying the Dragon was the book that got published last year. Yep. Ben Riggs. Uh, which is, exactly. Yep. I wonder if uh, Joe Manganiello's documentary is kind of going to be like the D&D movie version of those in terms of it having much wider market appeal mm -hmm. i think you've you've got to be pretty interested in D, D already to buy ben riggs's book or to go and search for those documentaries on youtube mm -hmm. but if you're presented this on i don't know where he's publishing it i don't know if it was mentioned but if it's on netflix or disney plus or somewhere like that mm -hmm. um it probably gets a lot more people interested who might have been fans of stranger things going oh I'll check this out oh that's really interesting i might yeah. play the game so i wonder yeah. if that's the the sort of attitude they're taking to it yeah and and i assume that 
you know, Wizards is giving its blessing to this since they put it in the mm. video. Yeah. <laughs> so it, you would imagine that it wouldn't come out portraying the game or the brand or anything in, in any sort of negative light. More, yeah, of, a, more of a marketing piece and of a celebration of the game as opposed to, you know, let's look at some of the sordid history of TSR mm. or, or the Satanic Panic or anything like that. Mm. We got a look at a pre-alpha version of the virtual tabletop. Oh, Ben, the face tells it all. What 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 do you what are you thinking? It looks great. It looks like a great tool for people to play remotely. Mm-hmm. Um uh similar to my answer to to the Welsh DM earlier in terms of like the you know, simplifying magic versus complicating magic uh, across a system. My personal feeling is that I had my face scrunched the entire time during the demo where they're sitting around a table with their hand on a mouse, looking at their laptops. And as they're trying to role play with each other, they've got their laptops like up to here in front of them, making that feel so much more disconnected. Um, so I didn't love the look of it as an at-the-table application mm. unless you can have a communal screen where everybody's looking at it like a, you know, like a flat virtual tabletop-style setup. That doesn't look like what they're going for. But that being said, it looks fantastic for remote play um, mm. for folks that, you know, can't play in the same area. Yeah. It's very I... flashy, but it's just the, the the slow advance of technology makes me feel icky in some weird way. Yeah. Well, I mean, just the term pre-alpha, I went, okay. So, in other words, this is a simulation of what maybe we are possibly trying to sure. make. Uh, but I had the sort of same reaction as you. It's, oh, this is cool. Young me would not have believed that this something like this could ever have happened. And... I can't say that I hope it goes great <laughs> because <laughs> you, if it, if it becomes too, too good, right. If it becomes too good, then it, it, it directs how the game is played yes. and marketed and finally designed. Yes. And I, I use technology all the time. I use D and D beyond. I use roll 20 I use all of these things, but I also love to look at the other players or the DM in the face and make eye contact and, you Mm. know, and I, I want that to be a viable way to play the game for, for generations to come. I agree as an ex drama uh, student, ex sort of, semi-professional actor like that's my juice is like Mm. looking at people and having that sort of human interaction uh in a safe and imaginary space but it also uh, limits the 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 capacity of imagination i i feel Mm. as someone who's described on the law cast before how you know if a miniature is not what it represents then I want to go and buy the miniature that represents that literal thing. Goblin arches aren't enough to represent elven arches. I feel the same way about virtual tabletops. And so 
you know, the way that I imagine skeletons or the way that I imagine mind flayers, for example, is going to be different to how they look in that virtual tabletop. And so I feel like what that virtual tabletop looks like may dictate you know, dare I say for a later conversation, the atmosphere and themes and genre of the game that I want to play because those are the assets that are available to me. And I'm sure they will try to make them as as wide and varied looking uh, as they can for different styles of play. I'm sure there'll be like a Ravenloft um, expansion or something for it to make it look all gothic, mm-hmm. but it's still more limited than my imagination is or the imagination of the right. players at the table. Yeah, I you are also in education for for a bit. Yeah. And so I've talked with my wife, who is also a teacher, a lot about technology and teaching. And there, there's a threshold that you have to be able to keep the technology from being a barrier to learning. It has to be a tool to do the thing. And if it becomes a barrier to learning rather than a tool to enhance learning, you need to get rid of that technology. Mm-hmm. And I feel the same way about this. Depending on what the goal of your game is, as you're saying, if it limits the storytelling possibilities and the fun at the table rather than enhancing it, and it becomes the point of the game rather than the game becoming the point of the game, yeah, that's yeah. that's where I, I get a little bit... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one that yeah. felt uh, about that. I thought I was going to be Debbie Downer, but uh, yeah, it, 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 it itches the back of my brain in an uncomfortable way. Yeah. So we had all of that. And then at the end, for just the briefest of moments, we actually got to look at the D&D products. <laughs> and, and what uh, Chris Perkins... And Jeremy Crawford told us about was sort of what have we seen in 2014 to the present and Mm. what are we going to see going forward? So they mentioned keys from the Golden Vault, which is already out. They mentioned Bigby Presents Glory of the Giants. They mentioned Fandelver and Below, the Shattered Obelisk. Um, They mentioned Planescape and they said that the Planescape... Uh, product will set up the major adventure of 2024. Then immediately after that, they said, and now we're going to look at the, we're also going to look at the magic item, the deck of many things. And I was like, well, is that the adventure that's going to be the major adventure that's setting? That that sort of lost me. And then they said, and we're going to be introducing new, uh, a, a new old villain, Vecna. I was like, wait a second, is Vecna then going to be the major adventure for 2024? Uh, then they mentioned 2025 being the Red Wizards become uh, a central theme in, in an epic story. Uh, they talk about Ven- Venger from the D&D cartoon as making an appearance. That's right, yeah. And the League of Ma- Malevolence, they mentioned as bad guys. And and, uh, and that was, you know, this was all just sort of rapid fire discussion uh i was i was excited i was excited about many of those things to see what they could do with them there there weren't any specifics really but those are all cool things that if done right i could really get behind 
Yeah, I, I, Glory of the Giant looked really cool. Um, it's quite, kind of cool to see artwork coming from Glory of the Giant and uh, Vandalva and below the Shattered Obelisk. Um, I think I noticed one of the obelisks when I was reading and running the adventure in Tomb of Annihilation, so it's kind of cool if they've got this, um, you know, almost subtle marketing, meta-marketing, meta-storytelling thing that's running through all of their... little Easter egg that's run through all of their adventures. I think there's one in... Um, uh, Frost Maiden, what's it? Uh, Neverwinter. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what the adventure's called off the top of my head. Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Thank you. Um, uh, so I thought that was really cool, but also kind of odd for a for a game like D and D, where the DM probably looked at that and shrugged and went, mm-hmm. "I'll just decide what this obelisk is for for the purposes of this adventure." Yeah. Um, there there was a great deal of speculation online about whether these obelisks were meant to be there. Or if they were just a natural thing that are in so many adventures that at some point they finally <laughs> said, oh, look, we have obelisks in these six adventures. We didn't plan it, but let's pretend we did. Uh, <laughs> and and I'm fi- I don't think it matters. I'm, I'm fine either sure. way. Uh, now, if they had had a letter on each of the obelisks, and if you put them all together, they spell right. something, then yeah. you're like, oh, okay, they were planning it all along. But, you know with an obelisk is an obelisk and i'm sure you could make a really cool adventure that harkens back to each of them uh Mm. without having planned that into the future yeah yeah that's probably true um the other stuff just quickly as you were describing it just now it did kind of just come out as a mess of things i think they did say that vecna was going to be the head of his own adventure like the main Mm. villain of his own adventure um it felt like they were trying to do the Marvel like phase thing mm-hmm. in the next phase, but I don't think they quite pulled it off or stuck the landing as well for two reasons. First, everybody's wondering how this interacts with one D and D. Will mm-hmm. the Vecna adventure or the the adventure from twenty twenty five? I think they went as far out into the Red yeah. Wizards one. Will that be five E? Will that be five point five? Will that be one D and D? Will that be six E? Like what will they? What what will that adventure be in? So that kind of hangs over the top of this. And the other thing is they just like it was just names and words and pictures. They didn't really show any sort of visual map or any sort of mm-hmm. visual. Uh, representation that I could see where all this was going and what it was leading to. It just kind of felt like a a mess of stuff that, like, by 2025, I don't know where I'm going to be. Like, yeah. <laughs> who knows? Yeah, <laughs> so. it's, it's without knowing more about what we'll talk about next, which is the D&D movie, right? Without knowing yeah. more about scheduling and publishing is so hard, Uh not knowing where the virtual tabletop will be, not knowing how you're going to be able to publish these things. It's impossible mm-hmm. to do the full Marvel Cinematic Universe phase thing uh, because it's just budgets and plans are so up in the air uh, mm-hmm. that they would they would be called liars if they tried to do any more specific than what they did, I think. So That's I was fair. I was cool with that. Speaking of the D&D movie, see, I, I mentioned it, and then I get to say speaking of it. That's that's how you do that smoothly, Ben. Uh, it opened this weekend, and it did pretty well. It opened as number at number one in the U.S. at around $40 million, 
earning 71.5 worldwide for its opening weekend. It beat the estimates that people had set forth, but not by so much that you would call it like a surprise hit. The, the $150 million budget looks like it's safe that they're going to make money on it mm-hmm. uh, worldwide going forward. Uh, if you want to compare it to the original D&D movie from the year 2000, that movie did $33.8 million total on a $45 million budget. So this new movie beat the old movie's total gross worldwide to date uh, in just one weekend. So that's good. It was getting great reviews, over 90% on Rotten Tomatoes for both critics and audiences. But next weekend, Super Mario Brothers movie launches here in the U.S. So there's a good chance that we're not going to see the strong second week that you would hope to see when you have such a machine gun rapid release of these high-profile movies, including Guardians yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy, which is coming in just a few weeks, too. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I, I hope that it outperforms Mario, because Mario looks like hot trash of a movie. Um, I, I know a lot of creatives work really hard on it, so I don't want to, you know, come down on their uh, their creativity, but... Uh, the D&D movie, I, I saw it like two, three weeks ago now in an early screening. And it's weird to have FOMO for everybody seeing it this last weekend for a movie I've already seen two weeks ago because I'm kind of not part of the communal like, ah, I saw it and I'm seeing it and I'm uploading a, a picture of my popcorn to social media. Mm-hmm. Um, but that movie is, quick review, lots of fun, heaps of fun, as deep as a puddle of water. Mm-hmm. Um, but that Mario movie looks as a deep as a puddle of water that's been drying in the sun for two hours. Like I, uh, I really hope the D and D movie outperforms it. But oh, not, not I, a I don't chance. know what. The, oh, no you don't chance. think so? Oh no, no. Oh, okay, because we, we have to remember that D and D is still as large as it's gotten. Is still a very niche thing. Sure. Super Mario? Are you kidding me? Everybody knows Super Mario. Yeah. Whether it's Mario Kart or the original or Donkey Kong or all of the iterations of it throughout the years, there are going to be families going to see this. Right, right, like, just the theaters are going to be packed. There's not a doubt in my mind. Um, th- and th- and it's, think- it, it doesn't matter how good the movie is, right? It's just, it's, it is this big and D&D is this big in comparison. I suppose you're right. It just, uh, you know, it, having waited, I know folks, fans of Mario have waited the, the 20, 30 years for a, for a good Mario movie after the, the train wreck, <laughs> weird kind of surrealist thing the last one was. But the, just seeing the trailers for this feels like they were like, let's make the Lego movie and Minions into Mario. And it's like, yeah, I could see as a Hollywood executive why you'd, think that but when the toads are like look at us we're adorable in the trailer i'm just like ah anyway (laughs) that's beside the point this is not a video game podcast no no it's not uh but you know it just goes to show for me it goes to show where as D &D fans where we were where we are and where it would be great if we could get 
kill. And and that's that's why I even mentioned that movie just to show. Well, maybe I'm going to be wrong, and maybe it will. The Mario movie won't do as well as I imagine it will, but I think it's going to be huge compared to mm-hmm. to the D and D movie, which I saw. I have a very similar, uh, no spoilers, but fun. Mm-hmm. About as good a representation of D and D as you could do without making real D and D players mad, while still entertaining <laughs> the general public. I, I sure. think is is sort of the safe ground you can land in there. But we will talk about it with spoilers on this pad podcast I heard called Eldritch Lorry Cast. Um, we're going <laughs> to record it and talk. All about all the stuff from the movie. So you Correct. can find I'm that. forward to that tomorrow. Yep, on the Eldritch Lore cast. So, oh, any other uh, thoughts on the, the movie or its release um, or anything? No, no, I think I'll, I'll sit on that for the, the lore cast spoiler special that we're going to do. I mean, I guess just the one thing is I'd, I'd recommend it, you know, mm-hmm. going in and knowing that it is uh, a popcorn movie. Um, uh, it, it's not the Banshees of Inish Sharon or, mm-hmm. or everything everywhere all at once in terms of theme and, and right. story, but it's a lot of fun. So yeah, yeah if you're a D&D fan, I recommend it. I, I went with a mixed group of avid D&D players, casual D&D players, and have no interest in playing D&D, but know that it's a thing. And I yeah. asked those people who aren't into D&D at all, did you understand everything that was going on? Did it make sense? Did were you lost at all? And they're like, no, we we understood it. We you know, there were they were throwing names around. I didn't know, but I understood yeah. when they said that name, they meant a city. I understood when they meant that said that name, they meant somebody really powerful. But yeah. I don't know who exactly it was. So that's that's where they threaded that needle of not losing the casual viewer by trying mm-hmm. to go too deep into D and D lore while still making it accessible. For sure. In good news, the Hobby Games channel was up 10% in 2022, uh, according to ICV2. So after two great years, including a spectacular 2021, the Hobby Games channel grew 10% in 2022, capping a 14-year run of growth, according to the ICV2 estimate. We looked at the role-playing game sector, and number one, of course, is Dungeons and Dragons, as it almost always is. Pathfinder <laughs> rose to number two. Five uh, E open gaming license content came in at three. Um, they gave examples such as Cobalt Press and Darrington Press. Sure. Uh, coming in fourth was Vampire the Masquerade from Renegade Game Studios, and coming in fifth was the Transformers role playing game, also from Renegade Game Studios. So. That's good. And some some uh, areas of the hobby game sector were down. So seeing that the RPGs were, were up was was welcome news. Any any thoughts? Any insights? Uh, uh, not not terribly uh, deep insights. I, I wouldn't doubt. Um, I, it. I have mixed feelings on seeing 5e OGL stuff, first of all, all mashed together on this list, mm-hmm. and second of all, coming above like other very different role-playing games. Yeah. Um, it just shows you the ubiquitousness of 5e throughout the hobby, which 
I love, as I've mentioned before, as a shared language that mm-hmm. in, sometime in the future, I'm sure you're going to be able to pick up many different styles of, of games based on 5e and it'll be like a shared language. But at the same time, it also means that there's less variety uh, in the hobby overall. But I'm contributing to that because I've only really played 5e in a handful of other games. So, yeah. you know. Yep. So the 10% wasn't just you buying other stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. correct. <laughs> it wasn't the Ben Burn bump. No. Nah. Okay. <laughs> no way. <laughs> well, if you wanted to see the D&D movie and get a meal and play a game all at the same time, you could have at the Alamo Draft Houses across the US. So the Alamo Draft House is a restaurant theater where you can sit, have a meal, and watch a movie. And what they did in certain select locations was also offer a one-shot adventure that would take about three hours to complete. You would get a customized D&D Dungeons and Drafthouse character sheets <laughs> and exclusive commemorative dice to take home with you for your next adventure. So I thought this was really cool that... You know, certain places really got into this. Since you're already at a table eating your meal while you're watching the movie, you can just uh, mm-hmm. c- come in and play. And I thought it was pretty clever. A lot of these different um, cineplexes or, or movie uh, houses were doing custom things. You know, the popcorn holder uh, that was shaped like a D20 and, you know, things like yeah. that. It was, it yeah. was pretty. Did you have anything like that when you watched the movie? No. We, well, I, I didn't. Um, how advanced screening was really underground. It was really weird or not underground, but just like, just, just very simple because I went onto the website expecting to book a movie. Like I said, two weeks from the, the day that I went on the, the cinema website. And then it was like, Hey, there's a screening like in three days. Do we want to get all our friends together? And it was a public holiday. Um, but I did have a friend of mine who runs a, a pro GM company called masters of alchemy. Uh, she ran uh, one of these days at a local cinema uh, and all the GMs cosplayed uh, just fantasy X character and went in and ran a session um, that was, yeah, three hours. And then they all, all the DMs got to go see the movie along with the audience that uh, had been there as well. So uh, it sounds like it was a really exciting day. I missed out on that one actually, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a cool idea, yeah. you know? And now we are going to get to our main topic here on Mastering Dungeons. We are going to talk about exploring themes and genres in D&D and other role-playing games. So if you've been following the show, you know that we've been looking at other role-playing games and comparing them to D&D, showing the mechanics and the, the flavor and, and all of that. And what we've decided to do this week is rather than dig into a specific game, we're going to talk in general about genre and theme because we hear advocates of non D&D role-playing games whether they're just D&D haters or simply people who understand and appreciate different kinds of role-playing games say things like well D&D or 5e isn't really that good at blank you should really try this other game instead if you want to blank and blank could be horror blank could be storytelling blank could be anything any theme any sort of play type um where people want 
to say that D&D doesn't do it as well, so you should try this other thing. So we want mm. to sort of dig in and see what does it mean when someone says that? What themes or what sorts of play styles are they talking about? And is it really true that D&D isn't that good at that? Or or is it is it true? Or is it true in just certain cases? Uh, mm. And so I have been here, master storyteller, to talk, yes, you, yes, you, <laughs> to to talk with us a, about this. So my first question, Ben, is what do we mean by theme in terms of role-playing games? I mean, that, that that's a good question. Um, uh, and I wonder if you and I, just got looking at these show notes, if you and I are on a slightly different um, wavelength with this. Because I think that theme in storytelling, you know, in novels, in movies, in video games, you know, especially modern games like God of War, theme is um, as opposed to genre. Not mm-hmm. that those are I- opposing ideas, but just defining theme as separate from genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, genre might be dark fantasy. Genre might be uh, sci-fi. Genre might be high fantasy, um, heroic fantasy, uh, cyberpunk. You know, those are the the genre of a world that come with their tropes um, uh, that you might want to play in. But each of those genres are good at exploring different themes. So dark fantasy tends to want to explore themes of uh, struggle and sacrifice for victory whether as heroic fantasy wants to explore themes of, you know, is it better to be honorable than uh, dishonorable? You know, honor mm-hmm. usually wins out over dishonor in a heroic fantasy um, as opposed to, you know, historic fantasy or dark fantasy tends to focus much more on like the practicalities of life. Dishonor can in fact win over um honor in the right circuit in certain circumstances does strength make right cyberpunk looks looks at you know the impact of advertising and the impact of technology on the human spirit and and i guess the you know these are all kind of high-minded concepts that folks will talk about a lot in uh relation to books and movies predominantly but i see a lot of this talk coming increasingly into video games particularly through games like i mentioned god of war the last of us mm-hmm. um the, these sort of storytelling games even cyberpunk uh dare i mention its name uh in the video game context uh. um but are they important to role-playing games are they something that can be explored in role-playing games? Are they something that should be or shouldn't be explored in role-playing games? And what is the role of the GM in presenting these themes and the players in exploring these thing, these themes? Because you don't want to, as a GM, I think, be educational to your players. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to be like, I'm going to teach them about this theme in a way that a book might try to do that. Um, but that being said... I'm also an incredibly artsy person. So whenever I'm designing a campaign, I'm like, all right, what are the themes that I want to explore in this campaign? And what are the characters that I'm going to create and the scenario that I'm going to create to explore this theme? Does that all make sense? Yeah, it, it all makes sense. And and it, it goes also to the mechanics of games. Yeah. Because the mechanics of games tend to reinforce the themes that the game expects players to to work within, um, both theme and genre. And so we'll, we'll just start with D&D. 
we'll start with 5e D&D because first edition D&D and fifth edition D&D and third edition, they, they, they're all similar, but they all lead to a different sort of gameplay, especially something like first edition versus every from third edition on. Because mm. in, in, in third, fourth and fifth edition, you are playing as a character, a superhero. It may not be a superhero in terms that we think of superheroes as Superman flying around or the Hulk smashing everything, but you are very powerful and you are given those powers right from the start, from the birth of your character. And the game has hit points, which measure your life force, whether it's physical, mental, your will to go on, however you want to describe it. The Mm. game says that there will be conflict and that conflict will be violent. And so the themes that naturally come forth out of a D&D game are going to be that sort of man versus creature, right? Man versus man. Those sorts of very basic uh, conflicts that you see in stories. Now, can you go deeper? you absolutely can go deeper in terms of those themes. But at some point, the DM generally says, let's roll for initiative. And everything that's going on in the story around it tends to focus in on those die rolls. Mm. Can there be role playing within that? Absolutely. Does it tend, does the game tend to encourage that? Not necessarily. You, sure. the the players in the game master have to bring that element to it because the rules themselves don't say well if you are being brave and heroic you get a bonus as opposed to being cowardly and craven it's mm. except if you're hiding behind cover or not <laughs> right but but even then it, that's just the base rules it's not something that story wise your character is making a choice uh, that's going to affect the roles directly, I think. Mm. Does that yeah, does and, that ring true? Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right, and I think that that's why a lot of folks, you know, for Five E being the most popular um, role playing game, certainly at the moment, um, a lot of folks try to do a lot of different things with it, myself included, um, and it can feel incongruous. You have that. Uh, term used in video games a lot that ludo narrative dissonance when uh you know you might be trying to introduce a, a theme of uh you know who what is monstrousness you know is monstrousness being a monster or is monstrousness behaving in a way that that could be described as monstrous you know um and you're trying to sort of explore this theme but your players through the game are encouraged to skin and take out the teeth and carve out the heart of all the monsters that they slay uh, because that gives them a certain bonus in the game, um, which is not necessarily a 5e mechanic. It's, a, it's actually a grim hollow mechanic. But but it's the example that jumped into my mind in terms of like trying to explore a theme and then the mechanics just kind of crash into that theme. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you're, you know, you're, you're exploring monstrousness and one of the players is just like, well, I want the XP, so I'm going to kill all these goblins, make sure every single one of them's dead um, uh, because, you know, it, it, I get a bonus through the mechanics of the game for doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
exploring theme definitely may require a tweak of the rules if you want to be able to not have those inconsistencies between theme and um between theme and mechanics. But what I'm curious about as someone who hasn't played a lot of other role-playing games is are there games like uh, I would just bandy a guess at something like Fate maybe Mm -hmm. that really does encourage the exploration of theme um, within the mechanics of that game? Absolutely. And the, the mechanics themselves do that because they don't have hit points, say. They have a stress track. Now, that stress track can represent physical damage. But that stress track could just as equally represent mental damage. That stress track could be used to represent wealth. That stress track could be changed to represent your ego. That stress track could be uh, represent your romantic capabilities, your romantic prospects. And you could have a total romance game where... The things that you try to do are, you know, keep your romance track from running out or to damage the romance track of suitors that are vying for the hand of your love. So in that way, you can express those sorts of themes right in the the mechanics of the game. Sure. Are they, uh, is theme, I suppose, something that you, when you're thinking of what role-playing system you want to sit down and play, does theme play into it? And, you know, even more zoomed in than that, if, you're, if you've decided as a group you're going to play 5e, does theme play into the decision around what adventure you're going to play or what adventure you're going to run? And I also just want to make a quick differentiation. Sorry, I have a habit of asking multi-layered questions. Um make that distinction between genre and theme. So if I'm deciding between Curse of Strahd or Rime of the Frostmaiden, which are both hypothetically um, horror adventures, choose, I'm not necessarily choosing between the, the genre, even though there is slightly differentiations in genre there, but the theme of like, you know, there's a romance to Curse of Strahd in a way. There's a, a gothic romance to Curse of Strahd versus the like winter survival uh, of um, uh, of Rime of the Frost Maiden. How important is that to you in choosing the the games that you're running or want to play in? It it should be important, but it ends up not being important for all the reasons sure. we just talked about, which is unless there are mechanics that that uh, overcome or enhance that theme and present it in a different way, you're still sort of dealing with the same the same base system, the same game loops, the same reward system, you know, all of those things. And you know, games have tried, 5e DD games have tried to introduce these new things via systems, new themes via systems. We've done it, you know, with Grim Hollow. We're we're doing it. We did it with Aurora. We we're doing it with the New Valken Clans book. Um, one of the things I love about about Grim Hollow is the Beast Pool and the Resolve Pool, and mm. that sort of tries to bring the that theme you mentioned of monstrousness to to the player characters in terms of the mechanics of the game, rather than being this 
ephemeral notion that's hanging over the game but not really interacting with the game. Mm. So if you act in a monstrous way in Grim Hollow and you're using the Beast Pool and Resolve Pool mechanics, every time you act in a monstrous way, the DM gets a, a Beast Pool die. If you act heroically, you get a Resolve die in your pool, which you can then use for various things. Uh, even the transformations in Grim Hollow are trying to take that idea of monstrousness, mechanize it, and also give story beats that the game master can use to offset the powers that you get with some story and mechanical based elements that that can be pres- that can be put in front of you as both story and mechanics i think mm. yeah i think i think the the transformations do a good job of doing that when i first looked at them i remember discussing uh with the designers uh you know these transformations seem really powerful it seems like the player characters get a lot on top of what they're already getting from their uh, species benefit and their class and any magic items that they might have. Why weren't these worked in as feats instead? Why weren't these worked in in some sort of more balanced way? And the response that I got was initially the playtesting hated the idea of these being worked in as feats because they were taking the feat slot that somebody might want to take or or the um, you know ability score increase slot that somebody might want to take. But additionally, it's not really the point. Yes, you become a lot more powerful through these transformations. You might become much more powerful than your fellow players at the table. But if your goal is not necessarily to play a game where you all slay monsters and eat some chips and have some fun, if your goal is to explore what is monstrousness and what is the experience of losing control of oneself, Mm -hmm. these transformations are great because they make you a lot more powerful, but they also come with flaws that your character has to grapple with. You know, if you're a vampire, you have to roll uh, saving throws to avoid attacking your fellow party members and your, your craving for blood. If you're playing an aberrant horror, you have to make rolls to avoid transforming different strange limbs. And how does that make you feel about your humanity? Sorry, we're going very highbrow in this episode. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you're, you're right. They're, they're excellent mechanics for, for kind of exploring those themes. Yeah, and so that's that's the the thing you need to look at when you talk about these themes, or or if, if we want to say genres as you know part of the discussion. Yeah, yeah, not sure, necessarily sure. equal, but uh, yeah, how do the mechanics handle that? And so that's why when people say, "Well, I, I have I'm playing D and D. I love horror, so I'm playing horror games with Five E, and everyone steps forward and says." Why aren't you playing Call of Cthulhu? Why aren't you playing Dread? Why aren't you playing this? Why aren't you playing that? And it's it's not a it's not a stupid question. Uh, it sometimes comes off as a little snotty. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> because the reason people play Five E is because people play Five E. Yeah. And people know Five E. So you know to have someone take a game and make some adjustments to it rather than playing this other game doesn't mean that they're putting down the other game. They just are working with the form that they know the best and have the best chance of altering in a way that 
fits what exactly they want. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, speaking of horror, I think horror and I'm not here. I'm not talking about like grim fantasy or dark fantasy. I'm talking about true horror. One of the things but I know I've talked about it with you before is that D&D is not a great game for horror. For reasons of theme, the themes that the genre brings forth are this dark hopelessness, this nihilism. Right. This idea that mm. no matter what you try, no matter where you turn, you're done. Something's coming mm. for you. And you can think you're smart, but you're not. You can think you're fast, but you're not. Because mm. no matter how fast you run, this monster that can only move like three steps you know, every 10 seconds is still somehow right behind you. Mm. And D&D is not good at that sort of thing. Would you yeah. agree? Yeah, absolutely. It was fascinating watching this get uh, kind of discovered uh, across a number of years in the video game industry where uh, Dead Space came out. It was this video game from like, I want to say 2008, 2009 maybe. And it was billed as like the most horrifying video game, the most the most terrifying video game that had ever existed. And I played the first 10 minutes of it and it's kind of a mix of alien and the thing into one conglomerate of terror. And I played the first 10 minutes and I was like, nah, I'm hard out. Like I do not want to play that anymore because I don't do well with horror, ironically. Um, but then the, the second two games that came out in that series and in other video game horror series, I think what they were trying to do was capture the idea of fun because video games are meant to be fun. But what they found is as these games became more and more action-based, more and more heroic, if you will, even though they've got scary monsters with bits falling off them and and horrible imagery and um, body horror, they're not scary because you can deal with the thing that's coming after you. You you have the tools to be able to fight back against the monster. And so if you can defeat the monster, then its power as, an ele- as something to be feared is, is taken away. And then games like, um, oh, I'm going to completely blank on its name. The, the sequel had a subtitle called Machine for Pigs, I think. But Amnesia, The Dark Descent. Mm-hmm. Um, was the name of the video game and slender man came out which was a very simple little game and all these games did was just make it so that you could not fight back the only way you could avoid getting torn apart or eaten or whatever happened was to go and hide or outrun the monster or something like that and suddenly the game becomes so much more terrifying and there was this almost rebirth of video game of horror in the video game um uh, uh sphere um, I'm sure that story can be told a lot more with a lot more nuance by by a video game historian or aficionado. But it was interesting coming into Five E, wanting to play not necessarily horror, but but definitely wanting to play dark fantasy and finding it very hard to do because Five E naturally leans into that um, heroic fantasy. You can fight back. You have all the tools, no matter how powerful. Especially once the player characters start hitting level six, seven, eight unless you're throwing something at them that's well beyond their capabilities to to fight, they're probably going to be able to defeat it handily. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's why it, it doesn't work well in that genre. Yeah, I mean, the same thing happened role-playing game-wise when Ravenloft first came out. 
not the right. not the initial adventure, but the box set world. And I was so excited. I bought that box set, and I thought my game group is going to love this. And we started playing, and they just didn't. And I tried to do things that simulated that sort of loss of control, loss of loss of complete understanding of everything going on in the world. Right? Mm. I'm I'm going to keep track of your hit points. You don't know how many hit points you have. You know you're injured, but you're not sure how injured. Oh, they hated that. They hated that loss of control. And, you know, these are people I would consider fans of horror, but they didn't want that in their game uh, because D&D wasn't horror to them, even though they tried to make it horror and wanted it to be horror. They really didn't want it to be horror. They wanted it to be D&D. Well, I wonder if there's something in that as well, because like to bring this back to a discussion about theme, you know, horror is about hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Horror is about fear, you know, and, and the unknown, um, or even if you know something, you know, your end is, is upon you, uh, of existential dread of feeling small in a very big kind of, um, you know, galaxy or world or whatever it is. Um, and taking away someone's hit points may have made them feel like they didn't have the steering wheel on their car anymore, but it just, it's just a feel bad moment. It's not, it's, I don't feel hopeless. I don't feel like the monster's overwhelming. I just feel like I'm blind now. You know what I mean? Right. So I, I think that's very interesting to kind of play with like, what can you take out? No, that's, that, that's not capturing the actual theme. That's just, Mm -hmm trying to mechanically manipulate the situation. All right, let's put that back in. Let's see if I take away this, or let's see if I change that, or let's see if I change this modifier. There's a lot that can be played with there to try get the the specific feeling of theme that a simple mechanic change on its own might not be able to accomplish. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and even even further, like right at the base core of D&D is characters aren't meant to die. Sure, yeah. And show me a horror movie where no one dies. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's probably not the... Uh, unless you're like very... You're into the very cerebral, like The Witch or uh, Heredity. Uh, you know, those yes. sorts of yeah. movies that are very psychological. But again, you know, that's... You're not going to have a D&D game where everyone's sitting around a table you know, having dinner and discussing weird topics or having weird small tricky things happening it's it's just not but there are games for that <laughs> hmm. what are my vocabulary is not big enough um uh, so i know by reputation things like call of cthulhu right um i know by reputation you know dread i think i have mm. played dread once um what are some games that are really good at, at capturing different themes you know in the horror genre and beyond yeah i i don't know other than the ones we've mentioned i'm not as familiar with horror uh as sure. as i possibly could be but we could carry this into other genres and other themes you know, we can talk about um, apocalyptic games and sure. what are the themes that come with those sorts of things, the survival, the exploration, those sorts of games. And again, you know, D&D doesn't do those well. And so you either need to add on some mechanics 
to make it so that you feel the importance and the conflict and the drama of exploration and survival or you need to go to a completely different and do more of a you know a sci-fi apocalyptic game uh, sure. rather than than D&D where you can cut down the power level of the characters to the point where they can't at second level or third level cast create water or you know mm. purify food and drink or something that just allows them to survive with a, with a simple spell but how do you do that without it just feeling like busy work? Because I like when I think post-apocalypse, again, leaning back into the video game realm, I think instantly of Fallout. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a role-playing game for Fallout now as well, which maybe mm-hmm. I, I should look into. And what the, the theme that I think of about Fallout really strongly stands out to me is loneliness mm-hmm. because that expanse of the wasteland, whichever wasteland you're in, I've played a lot of fallout games. <laughs> you're just walking through this wasteland, you know, it's rocky mm-hmm. and there's dead trees and there's maybe a house and there's, you know, monsters around maybe, and you deal with them, but you move on. Um, the, the, it's not the threat of like getting killed in the wasteland for me in in fallout it's just the the intense loneliness you feel just wandering around that place between the moments where you discover something you know and that i think would be very hard to capture in in a role-playing game because you're with people inherently when you play role-playing games um you're you're, most of the time if you're playing a tabletop role-playing game unless it's a solo one um so it would be interesting but but sorry within that same thought i remember there was a survival mode i think for fallout new vegas where it was like you've got to worry about your water and you've got to make sure you drink enough and you've got to make sure you sleep enough and i think skyrim introduced the same thing where you can't be out in the cold too long and you need to be near fire and blah 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 and i was like this is great this is like introducing survival and this is going to be awesome and i'm going to feel like i'm really surviving and it just again felt bad because all it felt like was busy work and i turned it off within like two hours of playing i was like i can't be bothered standing next to this fire for the next like 20 minutes like yeah. i got stuff to do and although the theme and the genre are different it's the same problem as horror right it's the same yeah. thing of not having the power to make your situation better mm. and so you know with D D, we've we've added systems to our games in grim hollow and in aurora to be able to sort of keep a meter for how well you are doing at the survival and the exploration. And the goals of the games have to change a bit. Right? It can't be just go out, kill everything, take all its treasure. It's, it's making choices to do one thing or another. And being ready to suffer the consequences if you go off and do this one thing and not take care of the more basic needs of yourself, your party, or a settlement that you are trying to build. Mm. I'm working on an adventure right now that we're going to, that delves into that, exactly that thing of, you know, we have this settlement here. What are we going to focus our energy doing? Are we going to go out and make ourselves more powerful? 
or are we going to do what we need to do to make the settlement more powerful, giving us a safe space to be in as we become more powerful? Mm. So, you know, it's those choices that you can represent in D&D if you add some rules, but other games might do it a little better um, as as your as your um, personal power is tied to theme uh, as is tied to aspects outside of you hmm. so I've, there there's a game that the a group that i work with sometimes called encoded designs is is been toying with where you um i, I don't know if i should talk about it I'm not going to talk about it, but let, <laughs> let's it, yeah. let's put it this way: uh, your community is just as important as your character. Yeah, and so you can have several goals and several stories, and the things you do for your community may take away from your personal power, but you get that power in other ways, in other story ways, and in other mechanical ways. Because mm-hmm. if your community is wiped out, you're just as screwed as if you had been wiped out Mm. so you can't just take one track and put all your energy toward your own character you need to put some toward this toward this other thing and you can do it with powered by the apocalypse games and you can do it with fate-based games because with a fate-based game your community might be an aspect and that aspect is something that if it's if your community's strong, you can use a fate point to get power from that community. If your community's weak, the game master can use that aspect against you to make your life miserable. So mm. it's a uh, you know it's it, those sort of storytelling, more storytelling focused games can handle it a, a bit better. Mm. Any any other thoughts on, uh, on theme? Uh, yeah, yeah. Tell me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I guess the the one other thing is like the, there's a the other aspect to role playing games, uh, which is kind which is the more nebulous aspect, which is the storytelling aspect, sort of separated from the mechanics. And that feel good moment is when the mechanics feel like the story that's being told you know i think monty monty martin of the dungeon dudes talked about this uh a while ago in the law cast where dual wielding wielding two weapons one in each hand you feel like you need to roll two separate attacks or you feel like you need to roll two separate dice it's not enough to just do more damage on one attack because that feels like you're just attacking with one weapon you know mm-hmm. But there's also the storytelling aspect is kind of an important partnership uh, for me in creating theme. A big theme of my recent uh, Grim Hollow campaign has been kind of like the power of authority. Mm-hmm. And so I've introduced uh, a the faction, the Arcanist Inquisition, who are a very well-known faction in uh, Grim Hollow who hunt down mages. They're like the the children of the light, I think they're called in the wheel of time, uh, or the Templars in dragon age. If you're familiar with either or the witch hunters in the witcher Mm -hmm. separate from witchers themselves. Um, 
And so having these characters present in the story, um, and they have, you know, they do have mechanics. Their stat blocks have mechanics which make them proficient at hunting mages, and you can give them uh, magic items, perhaps ironically, divine magic items that make them more proficient at hunting uh, mages. And uh, more than that, they can, like, rabble rouse a community because they 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 one of their big weapons is faith they don't need to travel with armies they can raise an army wherever they go because they get the community to be like yes we love the gods the gods are telling us that we must hunt down mages and so the community can turn against spellcasters as well and i what, what i found was really interesting with introducing this big story element was that magic had never felt more dangerous in my campaign than in a campaign where magic was functionally illegal, right? Mm -hmm. Which forced the player characters to play the game in a different way. Mm -hmm. And we agreed early on, you know, if you cast a spell, it is very obvious. You can't, unless you have subtle spell, which is a very specific sorcerer ability, mm -hmm. people know when you cast magic. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that story element really played into the themes and the way the players interacted with the campaign in a in a surprisingly big way to be honest mm -hmm. um compared to previous games i've played where i've been like yeah magic is like frowned upon and players like yeah whatever speak with dead you know you know what i mean right right and and so you know you're you're illuminating one of the big hard hard things to reconcile in role-playing games which is the rules versus the story and sure. you want the story to inform the rules and the rules to inform the story. And when you, like you said, when you do that, it's, it's great. Uh, but it's very, very hard to do that. And sometimes you need to introduce very su subtle or sometimes not very subtle systems so that the players can mechanize what the story is, is moving toward. So for your example of Casting a spell will draw the attention of the authorities. You can role play it, but unless the players have a way of understanding what the consequences of their actions will be and are once they do it, it mm. becomes a, a trap. It becomes hard to do because a player might think, well, I'm alone now, so I can do this. And they do it, and you say, well, you did it, but you were within the city limits. So even though you didn't think you were being watched, you were being watched. You know, sure, and sure. it becomes a very situational thing, which can be handled through a lot of communication, but sometimes that communication can slow the game down to almost a standstill because you're always yeah. saying okay, can I cast now? What's going on around me? And it, it, So what you can do is mechanize it in some way to say every time you use magic, no matter where you are, this counter goes up, to, uh, goes up one. Mm. And if that counter gets to 10, hellfire is going to rain down upon you in the story. So be ready yeah. for that. And it... It adds a mechanic, but it adds a mechanic that lets everybody know where everything stands. Yeah. And so when you can put that into a system, again, subtly is best, but sometimes it has to be unsubtle like that counter. Yeah, yeah. 
and and you can even make it a little more mysterious in that I you know I just rolled a four sided die, so you're safe up to five. You might be safe up to nine, but anywhere from six to nine might be in trouble. So that mm-hmm. adds a little mystery. It gives the play, you know, things like that can help players understand in a mechanical way what the story is going to turn into if they mm-hmm. do and uh, do a thing that the story would have them uh, be wary of doing. Yeah. Yeah. You've already given me a, a whole bunch of ideas in terms of like creating zones, you know, mm-hmm. high danger, mid danger, safe. And it's like, if you're in a safe zone, you can cast magic without problems. Mm-hmm. If you're in a mid danger, you know, maybe a counter goes up. If you're in a high danger, you might immediately suffer the the consequences of somebody sort of witnessing that. Mm-hmm. Um, Grim Hollow also, as you've already mentioned, has the, the beast pool and the resolve pool, which could perhaps be used in this way as described in, in the, I think it's the player's guide they're in. Um, it sort of says, you know, this is tied to thematically the great beast, uh, of the Burak empire that kind of wanders around. And if the, the beast pool ever reaches six, then the beast itself shows up and there's kind of a, a cataclysm that can happen. Mm-hmm. But I like tying that. And I think the rules even say this, you can tie that to kind of any major threat. If they're adventuring in a Stoya, you might tie that to the Crimson Court and a court member shows up if that ever gets to six. I like the idea of doing it in Castanella with the Inquisition. And it's like, right. yeah, if you, if that, every time you cast magic, it's a beast dice. And if that mm-hmm. reaches six, like a new Inquisition is launched, you know, yep. a grand army marches out from Tolatum or something. So that's yeah. cool. I, I enjoy that. So I hope that people have enjoyed our little talk on theme here. I hope it's resounded in people's minds. And as we go forward, as Teos and I move forward and look at other games, we'll come back mm. to this discussion to talk about themes and genres and how they work in these different games, if they work well, if they work, if they're sort of kludgy or, or somewhere in between. So thank you, Ben, for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed this. All right. And I want to thank all our listeners and our patrons as well. If you would like to become a patron of the show, you can do so. You can be a master of dungeons, and we thank you for doing that. You can be a master of realms. And if you are a master of the realms, then you get to be in our show notes. So thank you. And if you are a master of the multiverse, well, you get your name read on the air. So thank you, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Robin Dermy, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Chance Russo, Krishna, Simone Say, Can You See by the Dawn's Early Light, Joe Tyler, Mateus Valero at Twin Portals, James Walton and Graham Ward. Uh, thank you, listeners. You can come and be a patron at patreon.com slash mastering D&D. Um, ben, where can people find you and your work? Yeah, you can find me uh, on the Ghostfire Gaming YouTube channel where I'm throwing out videos each week, kind of trying to trying to, to craft darker fantasy stories in 5e. Uh, and of course, you can find the both of us, Sean, each week on the Eldritch Lawcast, which is our weekly podcast that is hosted by myself, yourself, uh, James Hake and Dale Kingsmill, which you can find where all co- good podcasts can be found, likely wherever uh, Mastering Dungeons can be found in this very app 
that you're mm. listening to. It's true. And you can find me on Twitter at Sean Murrow, and you can find Mastering Dungeons at Mastering D&D on Twitter. We're also on Mastodon. You can join us on Patreon, or you can find us at the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. So, Ben, we have talked about theme and genre and what it brings to games. So what are we going to do now? We're going to go hunt some monsters. And take their brains and eat them. <laughs> Make a stew. Because because we're that's the kind of folks we are. Yummy. Mm.